This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One from the Commonwealth Club, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. 2014 is a big year for water politics in California. With a searing drought on everyone's mind, the legislature recently passed and Governor Brown signed a landmark bill that tightens oversight on groundwater. Looking ahead on the November ballot, voters will decide on a $7.5 billion bond for water projects. And around the state, reservoirs at alarmingly low levels are prompting communities to swap cash for grass and pursue other types of voluntary and mandatory conservation. Over the next hour, we'll talk about water recycling, agricultural and urban use, water pricing, drilling deeper and deeper wells, and what will happen if this winter isn't a really wet one. This program is underwritten by the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation, and the views expressed here are not those necessarily of the Commonwealth Club or any of its funders. Joining our live audience today, meeting in Climate One today in Lafayette, we're pleased to have with us four guests. John Coleman is president of the Association of California Water Agencies. Danny Merkley is director of water resources with the California Farm Bureau Federation. And California Assemblyman Anthony Rendon is chair of the State Water, Parks, and Wildlife Committee, Democrat from Lakewood in Los Angeles. And Lauren Summers, reporter with KQED Science. Please welcome them to Climate One. Before we begin, I should mention that we also invited uh, Frank Bigelow, Vice Chair, Republican of the Assembly Water Committee, and he was unable to join us. Uh, we hope to have him uh, at, at another time. Uh, Anthony Rendon, let's begin with you. How is the drought changing water politics in California? Well, I think the what has what the drought has really uh, the way the drought has changed things is the sense of urgency. We have ignored our water infrastructural system for well over a generation in California. But uh, I think this year, um, because of the drought, there was a renewed sense that uh, and a desire to do something, um, w- both with respect to the bond and rebuilding our infrastructure, but also with groundwater as well. Okay, and we'll get into those uh, more deeply in, in the next hour. John Coleman, what are agencies doing to respond to the drought? Well, a number of agencies have put in drought restrictions. Uh, they need to adopt if they haven't. The state water boards... Uh, measures to make sure that they can enforce the issues of the drought. Most agencies in the state have done that. Uh, it's up to them whether or not they want to do the $500 fine and, and things of that nature, but they need to be educating the public on how to conserve water because we don't know what we'll have tomorrow. And that's a $500 fine for washing off your sidewalk or spraying your house, yeah, anything? Or hard perhaps even irrigating outside more than twice a week. Okay, we have some examples, and we'll get to that uh, get to that later. Uh, Danny Merkley, the ag impact we've seen from KQED and other places, some pretty tough impacts on agriculture. How's the drought affecting the Central Valley agriculture production? Well, it's um, had a big impact on uh, a lot of production. We've had hundreds of thousands of acres of land not fallowed but idled, um, and that that's a huge impact not just on farmers and the farm economy, but 
but on people that rely on agriculture in those areas, uh, people that work on the farms, uh, then related businesses, the Port of Oakland, uh, for example, 48% of the dollar value of stuff that moves out of the Port of Oakland is agricultural products. So there's a big impact uh, to everybody beyond just farmers. Are people seeing that at the grocery store yet? I don't know. My wife does most of the shopping. <laughs> um, is your wife here? Can we ask her? Any? Yeah. No. Okay. Um, Milk prices, but, but, other things? Um, I would expect to see uh, prices go up, but more than anything, what we see is a, is a shift in where – um, our our food is coming from. Instead of from California, it might be coming from uh, other states, other countries, Mexico, and so on. Because there's fallow, we're just not producing as because much we're in not state. Pro- we're not producing as much, uh, not able to. Lauren Summer, you've done reporting uh, in, in the Central Valley. In fact, I spoke with one person today who went on the train over the weekend to Fresno to see some family. And I said, well, how's the drought down there? And he said, well, I saw some brown lawns, but people weren't talking about the water stopping from flowing out of the tap. So I guess there's no problem. But you've been down there. What have you seen from your reporting in the Central Valley? Yeah, it really depends on where you are. I mean, that's what's kind of interesting. I think here in the Bay Area, you know, we're all conscious, right? We're, we're kind of following some of the guidelines. But, you know, I wouldn't say a lot of people are really hurting in a lot of urban areas this year. Next year, I think, is a whole other question if it's going to be another equally dry year. But it's the same as kind of true in the ag community. You certainly do have people that really are in trouble this year. But you also have people with these senior water rights, with kind of these these kind of guarantees that they're first in line for the water in this state. And some people have what they need this year. So you kind of, it really depends on where you go to kind of see the impacts. Very, very local issue, water. Uh, uh, Assemblyman Rendon, let's talk about the groundwater bill. It was a big deal, perhaps the biggest thing that happened in water in California this year. Uh, Frank Bigelow, the uh, Assemblyman Republican uh, from the Central Valley, issued a statement after the water bill was signed by the governor. He said the bill will undermine private property rights and set the stage for billions of dollars in new fees. Your response to that, and what, and what would the groundwater bill do in your view? Mr. Bigelow is a, a colleague and a good friend. Uh, didn't agree with him then. I don't agree with him now. I voted for the, the groundwater bill. I think it was long overdue. I think it was simply just another case of the haves and the have-nots. Um, I think if you can afford a very expensive uh, uh, well-drilling equipment, then you wanted the status quo. If you can't, if you're a small family farm, uh, then uh, you definitely wanted uh, to make sure that the government came in and, and interceded. And what was important about the groundwater legislation as it was drafted was that it depended, it, it put the ultimate decision making in at the local decision making uh, level, which was which is very important and I think uh, overlooked. And what will the bill actually do? What will those local agencies decide? They're, they're now charged by the state to do what? Yeah, to basically to, to help in, in adjudicated basins. Which means a place where the, the courts have hashed out who gets what water. Right, basically. exactly. Sorry, I shouldn't, shouldn't, have, shouldn't have used that phrase. In many locales throughout the state, uh, these issues have already been resolved uh, in terms of who, who, has, uh, who has rights to, to, dr- to drill where and how deep and those types of things. But in some locales, it is, it's the wild, wild west out there, and this helps to provide a decision-making process for, for making those kinds of, uh, those kinds of calls. So neighbors are going to have to sort of figure out on their own 
in terms of uh, who shares the water. Uh, my understanding was that California was the last Western state to have something like this put in place. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, places like Texas, for example, had had uh, groundwater uh, legislation before we did. So, Danny Merkley, Texas is ahead of California. This that's kind of hurts to say, but yeah. Well, um, just a, a, a little factoid: if you took Texas and Iowa and put them together, they would still be the second largest uh, act-producing state in the nation. California has produced significantly, uh, not only for California and for the nation. Ninety-five percent of the processed tomatoes, which I used to grow. Uh, before I was wearing a necktie to work, that are consumed in the United States come from California. Um, just in the last 40 years, we've increased our productivity by over 85%. We've produced 85% more by volume using about 14.5% less water. So I think a lot of people understand California is a very productive agricultural state. The question is whether it was time to, to measure groundwater extraction, that there ought to be some metering, some accountability, rather than kind of a, a race to the bottom or sort of borrowing from the future. Everyone talks about groundwater as sort of the, the savings account for the mm-hmm. future. And if you're farming and maybe you're planning on cashing out your land for a shopping mall or something like that, you might be incented to suck all the water out and not worry about tomorrow. Well, going back to my wife again, if she and I are both writing checks out of the same checking account and depositing money in there, but we're not filling out the register, it's a little hard to balance it. So it is important. And uh, that was an encouraging thing I saw late last year in a meeting down in Tulare where uh, overwhelmingly it was the ag community in this meeting and you saw everybody nodding, say, we need to do something. We need to fix this. We have concerns with the way this um, very complex issue was dealt with in a very short period of time. Uh, this year, we think uh, we had time to continue to work on it. And understandably, some folks thought, if we don't do it right now, then it will get pushed off and pushed off and pushed off. But we did overturn over 100 years of case law uh, with this legislation this year. Uh, It's going to have very large impacts on uh, small and large family farms, mostly small family farmers, uh, simply because their operating loans, the loans they get every year to produce what they produce to pay all their bills, are predicated to a great extent on the value of their land, which a large part of that is predicated on their access to water. Bankers have already started questioning that and we're very concerned about how that's going to impact not only the local economy, but uh, our members. Are you saying there's going to be litigation? Sounds to me like you're saying that the banks are going to squeeze people and they're going to sue the government. That sounds like a recipe for litigation right well, there. I, the way I've seen the banks operate is they come to me and they say, your loan's due now. Mm-hmm. Pay up. Um, and that's a little hard to do in agriculture because you can't do that until your crop is in. And we saw that. I saw that personally in in the the early 80s uh put a lot of good people out of business uh because of bankers being scared lauren summer property rights some farmers may they may see their farms take a take a hit yeah i mean i think it's really kind of hard to overstate how big a deal this is for california water i mean just to put this in context for people um you know most of the rain falls in the top half top third of Northern California, and we have this incredible system, hundreds of miles of reservoirs and canals, and it delivers it all over the state. But in in dry years and in certain parts of the state, groundwater is the source of water. And the idea is 
in wet years, you're you're filling it back up, you're recharging it. So in the dry times, you can use it again. In drought years like this one, it's sixty percent ish. Mm-hmm. Of the state of, of the water supply that's actually used, it plays a huge role. And what's happened in some parts of the state is, is people haven't been refilling it. And and there's been a lot of resistance over the years. And in 2009, the legislature passed a bill to try to get people just to monitor this, right, to report how much was being used. There's still parts of the state that haven't done it in response to that bill. So there's there's a lot of anxiety around this. And I think for good reason. We really don't know how this is going to affect the everyday grower out there. At the same time, I mean, there's parts of the state where the water's dropped 100 feet in the last year below ground. I mean, just incredible changes. So a lot of people were saying you're kind of long overdue, but that doesn't mean I mean, the hard work is still to come. Anthony Rendon, I want to ask you, where's the teeth in this bill, uh, groundwater bill? Lauren Summer just said that some people aren't complying with the 2009 law. What if some counties say, ah, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing? Right. We- yeah, I, yeah, that's a good good question. I think it's incumbent upon the state to, to make sure that these bills are enforced. You asked earlier what the drought does, and I said that the drought creates a, 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 a system whereby we, there, there's a sense of urgency, and that's exactly exactly what happened with, with this groundwater bill this year. There was a sense of urgency to do something about problems relating to subsidence, as Lauren mentioned, um, and and the fact that so much of our groundwater is underutilized. Danny Murphy, do you want to get out, respond to what Lauren well, was saying about And I was just tagging on, on that a little bit. Uh, with that state backstop, it's, it's an important element if it's implemented properly. And one of the concerns that we have and we voiced uh, throughout the, the process this year is that the, the time frame for areas to establish that governance is very, very small. And um, two years is not enough time if the county doesn't step in or if local organizations aren't already set up to uh, develop those groundwater management plans and implement them. And just – to implement those things, we're talking in the billions of dollars uh, with local fees. John Coleman, what are agencies doing to, to re, re, replenish the, the, the groundwater in, in wet years? Is there enough being done to sort of, rather than suck it out in dry years, put it back in wet years? No, there's not. Part of the problem has been, I know at East Bay Mud, we've tried to cut deals in San Joaquin County, Sacramento County, and elsewhere, and, and there's been obstacles, political obstacles to overcome. We're over, that's happening. I, Personally, Aqua was a strong supporter of the groundwater legislation. That's um, the uh, state agency of water uh, yeah. agencies. Yeah, I mean, we our concern was if we went into another drought or continue into another drought, the legislature would come out with something that would probably be far worse than what the governor ended up signing a couple weeks ago. Um, and it, it's a crisis situation in the state. Had we had enough storage in the state of California – the, the people who are pulling from the ground would not be pulling from the ground like they are today, and that's part of the problem. We've not had enough storage, and we have not been putting the water back in the ground in ample times when we should have been doing it. Danny Merkley, is some of the uh, farmers drawing from underground because there's more water than they think should be going for fish or habitat restoration? Uh, Because their surface water supplies have either been curtailed or cut back drastically. And in order to keep their investment alive, in order to keep producing, they've got to go to their savings account, which is is groundwater. And that's why um, this needs to be a comprehensive solution. That's why the water bond is helpful to this. It's not helpful today. It's going to be 
decades before we see any new water come from that if we do but that's helpful it still will not replace the amount of water that we're going to lose in our access to groundwater so we've got some very very serious concerns about um, what part of agriculture we're going to dewater and what's going to come out of production assemblyman rendell so Danny, Danny says that this is helpful to the water bond. I, I would argue the other way around. I would argue both ways, that the water bond is, is, is helpful to this. The water bond necessitates us. We have to do something about uh, – uh, we have to have groundwater regulations and, and groundwater parameters in order for the water bond to function effectively. There are groundwater funds in the water bond in order to make sure – that the water bond is used effectively, that every dollar is spent effectively. We need to make sure that that we have groundwater legislation that, that ensures it will be used effectively. The water system is all connected. It flows all around. Let's have Lauren Summer set for us the, the water bond. Uh, what will it do? Where will the money go? Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. <laughs> um, there's definitely some money in there for water storage. That's a big chunk of it. So this could be surface storage, as people say, like reservoirs, raising dams, or possibly groundwater storage. There's environmental restoration. There's groundwater cleanup for contaminated water so people can use that water. I mean, there's a there's a kind of a little flavor of everything, which I think is why we've seen some pretty strong support, both in the legislature and from the public We'll see. But, you know, it's, it's as a lot of people have pointed out, because it's a little bit of everything, it's not going to solve the problems we have here in California. It's not going to really kind of take a big bite out of some of the big challenges that we have going forward. It was, uh, and it took, what, five years or so for this to get on the ballot. Finally, there was a bigger bond that didn't didn't go forward, a little piece of candy in there for everybody. Uh, Assemblyman Rendon, uh, can bond money be spent on tunnels to bypass the Delta and send water down south? No. Uh, John Coleman, about $2.5 billion for storage in the, uh, in the bond. Uh, some people say at TNC, the Nature Conservancy, and elsewhere that, that groundwater is actually a more effective place to store water than reservoirs. There's evaporation, and some wag pointed out you can't, you can't water ski in an underground aquifer, so it doesn't have the recreation benefits. But uh, talk about the, the storage component of the, the bond. The storage component, uh, the $2.7 billion is critical and there's some people who are loving criticism at Prop 1 saying it's going to build dams and nothing but dams. That's not the case. It will be the State Water Commission which will make the determination where that money is going to go in order to create the storage. Quite frankly, in California, we're probably going to see in the future for above-ground storage in most cases will be off-stream so you don't have the environmental issues. It will be more of a four-bay where in wet years you collect it and then it's put back into the river system for the fish, for flows and temperature, and then pick back up again and put in the ground. So it's going to be used several times in, in that whole process. And below ground storage is generally less expensive than above ground storage. Um, but the State Water Commission, not the legislature, will be making the determination what is the best public use of the money in order to create the greatest amount of storage. But below, below ground, it's not visible. It's hard for us to see it. It doesn't create jobs, construction jobs. It's not as – so there's, there's some political orientation toward concrete building things, right, that a, where a politician can cut a ribbon and say, look at this dam or well, – I think there will be a, a, some above-ground storage built clearly. But those who are arguing against Prop 1 saying it's nothing but above-ground storage, it's a, it's a false argument. And they're trying to use it as a wedge issue. I think you're going to see some above-ground storage. And remember, the, they're only, the 
the agencies that are buying into it are paying one half the cost. So the state, the $2.7 billion is not the whole amount. There's a multiplying effect where if a site's reservoir, if that's built, that 50% of it's going to be paid for by other uh, beneficiary users, not just the state as a whole. Assemblyman Rendon, you went around the state and had a listening tour, lots of different places. What did you hear from Californians about water and Monterey and all over the state? We uh, we conducted a listening tour. The, the way the 2009 bond was constructed was uh, the 2009 bond ended up being uh, $11.14 billion, and it was inclusive of a whole bunch of stuff that m- most everyone agreed and virtually every editorial board in the state agreed was quote-unquote pork. It was a lot of special projects that were added about $4 billion to the bond in the last couple of weeks. And as a result, that bond was pulled uh, from the uh, it was pulled from the ballot twice by the legislature. So when I was given this task of sort of reworking the bond, a lot of folks said, "Well, just cut it by 25 percent, cut it so that it goes under 10 billion dollars," which is what all the public opinion polls seem to indicate that if it was less than 10 billion, it would have a chance to pass. What we decided to do was to do something completely different. We just blew it up and started all over again. We didn't want to take a product that had been maligned, a product that that nobody seemed to like, and just sort of tweak it. So we just started from zero. We and we went on a listening tour throughout the state and talked to people in their communities. We did 18 public hearings from Redding to Eureka in the north to Coachella in the south to the San Gabriel Valley to Seaside to to Stockton and Merced. And everywhere we went, that, that, that dialogue informed what became this bond. And what we heard from people were a, a lot of different things. And Lauren said, in the Central Valley, it depends what you hear, it depends on where you are. So in a place like Hanford, for example, where we had to begin that hearing, we had to begin the hearing in Hanford in the evening because farm workers in that community, stay, they stand in food lines throughout the day because we have more fallow land in California. If you add up all the fallow land in California, it's larger than the state of Rhode Island. We went to places in the San Gabriel Valley where people have been battling with groundwater contamination for a generation. We went to places like Seaside that's sort of off the grid, so to speak. It's not uh, on the conveyance system. And everywhere we heard how essential, how important water was to the livelihood, uh, livelihoods of these communities and to these families, but always with sort of a different tweak, with a different ask, with a different orientation uh, with respect to what was important. And going back to the original theme, the original question that you asked me, the, the one thing that we heard was a sense of urgency. What we heard was, let's do something now. Um, so we, every place we went, we heard something a little bit different, even like Coachella, for example, where the Salton Sea is receding. And w- what, what's left is along the banks of the Salton Sea is this dirt that turns to dust and creates dust storms and leads to asthma all over the Coachella Valley. And we heard from families there and all over the state that please do something now. And is it true you got this through without any earmarks? We got it through without any earmarks, which... Two newspaper editorial boards told, told us was impossible. A number of legislators said it was impossible. Um, we got it through with that in your it, it does. I don't think you could get the Pledge of Allegiance through uh, without <laughs> earmarks. Uh, uh, Danny Merkley, is ag in favor of this? A lot of people in ag very concerned about where the money might go, given that much money to government. We're, uh, uh, the California Farm Bureau is very much in support of uh, Prop 1 and the water bond. 
And um, one of the things that was essential that we'd been saying all along is there needs to be a significant amount of dollars in there, not only for groundwater solutions for the economically disadvantaged communities that are in, in real trouble, uh, not just up and down the valley, but a- other areas of the state as well. Um, but then also uh, new water storage. And going to the water storage piece, that 2.7 needed to be continuously appropriated, which meant it has, it, it has been given permission once projects meet their uh, criteria to move forward. The legislature doesn't need to pass another bill to, to get that money out. We felt it was important to move that as quickly as possible. Groundwater or surface water storage, they're both water storage. They're both important. You can't force water into the ground the way you can divert it when it comes in the goalie washers that we're getting today like you can into surface storage. You've got to have the surface storage in the right places to be able to help with groundwater recharge either through the river streams and things like that or or putting in water banks. You, you just cannot take the type of climate we have now, no longer a nice, slow Sierra snowpack that we can gather up in, in the spring and in the summer and utilize. Now we get gully washers that if we can't capture it for one reason or another, it's wasted out to sea beyond what the ecosystem needs and what we need. So it's very important that we have both the surface and groundwater storage. And are humans behind some of that changes, burning fossil fuels? That's not my area of expertise. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna do the not. I'm not a scientist. Line, okay. Uh, we're talking about water in California. Danny Merkley's director of water resources of the California Farm Bureau Federation. Other guests today include Lauren Summer from KQED Science, uh, Assembly Member Anthony Rendon, chair of the State Water Committee, and John Coleman, president of the Association of California Water Agencies. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, John Coleman, I did something recently. Uh, I drank water out of a toilet. And it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, have you ever done that? Actually, I should clarify, it was at the California Exploratorium where you, they have a pretty cool uh, water tap in, in a toilet. Uh, you ever drank toilet water? I have, actually, here in Lafayette. Years ago, we were at East Bay Med, we were looking at a recycled water project, and some people in Orinda were opposed to it. And uh, they, I always told staff, bring a bottle and glasses just in case. And they said, if it's so safe, Mr. Coleman, drink it. So I opened the bottle. I poured it out. sort of smelled like cut grass. And uh, it was from uh, Central Sanitation District. And I drank it. And a couple days later, the guy came. And he said, you know, you look at our board. music. you look a little green in the gills <laughs> from drinking that toilet water. I said, you know, not only, Mr. Davis, not only do I feel great, my hair is growing again. <laughs> but it's going so, to be part of the future in one component. And it is going to become part of our drinking water supply at some point in the state of California. And it's already happened in one of the most cons- politically conservative parts of, of the state in Orange County. So Anthony Rendon, recycled water, we, you know, toilet to tap, it has obviously had a, has a bad rap, but some source of recapturing water has got to be part of our future. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely does. And you're right, they do it well in Orange County. They do it in Santa Clara as well. And that's a big part of this bond. I mean, we, we were talking earlier about about how residential use has changed and water conservation has changed. And I think that was one sort of change in, in consciousness, the way we use water as individuals. I think this bond, to a large extent, is about ushering in another change of consciousness. 
for me, what was important about this bond was to emphasize a lot of regional uh, solutions, such as water recycling, such as groundwater uh, remediation, such as stormwater capture. A lot of the local solutions are solutions that are most economically efficient. They're they're the less least intrusive on the environment. They're the best thing for relationships between east, west, north, south. Um, a lot of these local solutions, such as water recycling, are things that we ought to be doing. And quite frankly, other countries are doing much better than we are. And we've, Lauren I mean, we've, Summer? We've talked about, you know, water storage, water recycling. I mean, the, the overarching question here is where is the water going to come from in the future in California if we're looking at droughts, more droughts, longer droughts, more severe droughts. I mean, I think the interesting thing about recycled water, there's a lot of studies out there, but a lot of the studies say that's the biggest potential source in the state for more water. Um, You can build a lot of dams here in California if you had a lot of money, but a lot of that water is spoken for, or there's rules on when you can use it. It's very expensive to build dams. So I think there's been a lot more interest this year. We've seen a lot more conversations about recycled water, about some of these solutions. Is that cheaper water than than other sources of water, John Coleman? No, it's about over $2,000 an acre foot. Part of the problem is to do recycled water, you can't even put the purple pipe in the same trench as the, the potable water, and so you have different pumping plants, different piping, different reservoirs. Once the department, actually I guess it's the state water board, will make the determination, not Department of Health Services, where it's safe enough to be brought into your potable water system then the cost will drop. But part of it is the, the uh, development cost, the capitalization cost. Speaking of the state water board, do you think they've been too timid in, in sort of applying power? They have a lot of power in this state. They've been holding back in this election year, uh, at least election year for the governor. Do you think the, the state water board, how do you think they've played it this year, John Coleman? I think Felicia Marcus, who chairs it, they've done a phenomenal job. I mean, we're in an unprecedented time. We don't know what, what year four is going to be in terms of a drought. Um, they're being very cautious. They want to make sure that we have an adequate supply for the future. The concern that I have as a water agency official and others have, and we've spent a billion dollars the last decade at East Bay Mud to drought-proof ourselves to a large extent. That's why we're 10% voluntary, not 25% ra- uh, mandatory. Our concern is if we continue into a fourth, fifth year of a drought, the state may say, we're going to take some of your water rights and reappropriate them which then means in the future we may have a more difficult time going to the ratepayers saying, allow us to raise your rates so we can do this, this, and that, with the threat of the state coming in and saying, oh, you do that, now we're going to take and not make, they'll be less likely to make investments in the future. So that the people who, who are progressive did the right thing get penalized, and then the people who were kind of lagging, Anthony Rendon, is that a political possibility that some of, there's a sort of a, a perverse uh, reward for, for lagging and a penalty for being ahead of the curve? It's something that if, if I were running a water district, I would be uh, pretty vigilant about making sure that, 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 that that does not pass. I mean, that's that's something that uh, we should not allow. One thing that uh, is on people's radar these days is bottled water. There's a lot of bottled water that's extracted from desert areas of the state. Uh, Anthony Rendon, is that anything that can be done about, or as they have those rights, they can take you know bottled water uh, out of the desert, put it in plastic bottles, put it on diesel trucks, and we're trying to reduce carbon pollution? Right. I mean, if, if bottled water in general, I think, is, is problematic. In some communities, I've 
represent a community, the city of Maywood, that has had famously bad water quality for a significant amount of time. Salinas has had bad water quality. Fresno has had bad water quality. But uh, for the most part, I think bottled water has has been a problem. I'm not sure to what extent uh, we want to get into the issue as a legislature of water rights at this point. Because the, those companies have powerful presence in Sacramento, be, because it's uh, because it's a difficult difficult situation for the local uh, members who represent those districts. I think water law itself is something that's tremendously difficult to unravel as well. Uh, Danny Merkley, in the seventh about the seventh year of a drought in Australia, they reformed water rights in Australia. Pretty big, you know. You talked about underdoing a hundred year of case law earlier. Uh, the water rights system w- was got changed because the drought in Australia was so bad. What are the chances that could happen in California? That water rights could be reformed, changed in California? I don't want to be here if they try to do that. <laughs> I just spoke um, last week with uh, some folks from Australia that talked about uh, decoupling uh, water rights from from the land, and uh, that worked for some. And you it, don't own the own the water under your property, right? Okay. And they they completely re, revamped their water rights system. Um, Again, I think uh, the best analogy I can think of is is somebody coming to my parents and saying, you know, it's nice that you paid this for your house, you know, 50 years ago. You paid your, your taxes. You paid your mortgage. But these poor suckers over here that bought right before the, the crash in the housing market uh, are upside down. So you, now you need to go back, and we're going to take some of that away from you. You need to refinance to carry these other people. And I think uh, – that's a real problem, not just for those that are impacted directly, but for the economy as a whole. Uh, one of the things I learned farming is you don't do big wholesale changes. Um, you get a lot of unintended consequences. You need to go in as you learn and and adjust and tune up and change things. But uh, to, to do wholesale changes like that uh, – cause a lot of havoc. Danny Merkley is director of water resources for the California Farm Bureau. Uh, Anthony Rendon, water right reform uh, in Sacramento? Any possibility? Um, I haven't heard anybody talk about it. No one's brought it to my committee. It's something that, as as Danny mentioned, if it were to come to committee, it would be incredibly contentious. Lauren Summer? Yeah, I mean, if groundwater was a tough thing, to, took decades to pass here in California, I think water rights are kind of like the electric third rail. I mean, it would be incredibly challenging. But at the same time, it's a system that is kind of strange. It's all based on history. You either have senior rights or you have junior rights. It's all based in time. So it's not a system that makes a lot of sense inherently. It's just that for 100 years, that's the way we've been doing it. And there's a lot of court cases that kind of lock it in place. John Coleman? There's a lot of unintended consequences. I mean, any water, all water agencies, I think, would fight uh, changing the water rights structure. And teeing off what Danny said, you know, the 48% of what the Port of Oakland exports is ag. Well, that's 76,000 jobs that are union jobs at the Port of Oakland. And you start moving the water rights and start changing what can be grown, what can be grown, where it can be grown, and whether you can grow it. Those are jobs here in the Bay Area, good-paying jobs that are going to go uh, be lost as well. So you need to look at the whole package. You just can't say, this is, we're going to do this, and it's a panacea. It's not. 
John Coleman is president of the Association of California Water Agencies. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about water at Climate One meeting today in Lafayette. Uh, John Coleman, let's talk about water pricing. Uh, for a lot of things, uh, people, when things get tight, whether it's milk or other things, prices go up. But that's not really true, at least for res- for consumers, uh, individuals in California. When with the drought, we don't pay more for water. Perhaps that might be true in, in East Bay Mud where you have it, some tiered pricing. Let's talk about tiered pricing or more dynamic pricing of water that reflects its value in this drought. Well, sure. I mean, we we have three we have tiered pricing in the mud, three tiers. Tier one is below the cost of water delivery. Everybody uh, in our situation pays into tier one. Tier two is revenue neutral, and it goes up to so many units. And then tier three is pays for tier one. Um, but you have to remember, about ninety three percent of a water agency's cost are the only variable really is energy and chemicals when you get right down to it. So you sell less water, you're going to have less revenue coming in, you're going to have, but, and the only variable is you're going to see less energy and chemicals dropping. Um, people always complain, and justifiably, you raise rates during a drought, and they don't go back down. Well, it, it takes years. It takes an average of almost seven years to come out of a drought to go back to the consumption patterns of what you were before the drought. So when the drought could end tomorrow, and our water usage is not going to go back to what it was even a decade ago. It's going to take, you know, close to 10 years to creep back up. But 93% of our costs are fixed. And so you have to operate a system, and we're trying to invest more money on our system for pipes and, and failures. Our system is old. The average pipe lasts 70 years. We have pipes that are well over 100 years old in our system, and we're having to replace them at $3 million per mile. That, and if they break, it's $7 million a mile. Anthony Rendon, obviously uh, water is a basic human right. The access, there's some people in California who don't have access to clean drinking water, at least um, guaranteed so. And yet we have this commodity that's really, in many ways, underpriced. How do you, should we approach the pricing of water? Well, if groundwater was a big fight, which it was, and if um, altering water rights would be a big fight, which it would be, uh, having people pay what water costs for them for it to get to their homes would be an astronomical fight. Um, our water is heavily subsidized um, in communities. There are communities in Southern California, for example, the city of Claremont, which right now has a proposition, a measure on their ballot to uh, to uh, make public their water service uh, treatment, their their water uh, uh, their water system to their homes, because people are complaining about the price of water from a, a private company in in a place such as California, where you have this incredibly complicated water conveyance system. I can't imagine anyone would really want to pay what it costs to deliver water to their homes. So we built this this uh, ideal uh, society in a desert, and we're, we're angry that we have to pay a little bit, pay a little more for it. We're not we're, in a desert. I always uh, desert so, is less than five inches of rain per year. Right here, we get about thirty-two inches of rain per year in Lafayette. We have yeah. a Mediterranean climate. Beautiful. Yes, Lafayette's beautiful. Arid, arid state, anyways. We move water around to different parts of the state. Anyone else on water pricing? Uh, Danny Merkley, water pricing. A lot of people think that ag gets it too cheap. Um, water costs are based on your proximity to the source, on the quality it needs to be, what it takes to, besides transporting it if you're further away, what, how much treatment it takes to get it to that quality, whether it's drinking water quality or for irrigation purposes. 
and and it also depends on your infrastructure and if it's paid for. And so you have more senior water right holders, uh, irrigation districts, their system's paid for. They don't have the same cost that someone who's built a new a, a brand new facility that's still making payments on it. So, so really, and this is a little bit over the top, but uh, one way to look at it really is water is free. It costs to capture it, to transport it, and to treat it. And we have members in some parts of the state that are paying over $2,000 an acre foot for water, and we have other members that are paying under, well under $100 an acre foot. And it depends on where they are, the quality of the water that, that they're getting and how much it needs to be treated, and uh, and how how far away they're, they're transporting it. It's the, it's the kind of the, but I think it's a really important point. It's the kind of catch twenty two of conservation, right? It's people start conserving and then water rates have to go up. I mean, what's interesting is you know East Bay Mud has tiered rates and they have for a while. Uh, there's a lot of water districts out there that don't. I mean, we've seen a lot of our electric utilities kind of switch to these kind of conservation systems, right? It's the more you use, the more expensive it is. There's a lot of water districts that don't do that right now. And and, and electric utilities also have this thing called decoupling, which means they kind of set their rates kind of independent of how much power they're selling. So it's kind of a way of, of kind of breaking that chain of, of having to sell more in order to make more. Um, and so I don't know that we've really seen a lot of discussion of that, but I've kind of been interested to hear if it's going to happen in terms of whether kind of water districts are going to have to start looking at some of these policies that maybe the electric utilities have been doing for a while. Anthony Rindo? And To Lauren's point, to make matters worse or to compound that problem, we have communities such as Sacramento, for example, where the individual apartment buildings are metered. Are not metered. I think they're going to be metered, but over a very long, very long uh, time frame. Uh, Danny Merkley... Rice, alfalfa, cotton. Why is that grown in California during? And if, if we have such water stress, is there a future for those kind of crops in California? You can't grow some of those things other places. Um, alfalfa you can grow in other states, and we and, and we do import uh, a considerable amount into California, which is another issue the the Air Board may want to talk about uh, at some point because of the trucking it in. Alfalfa is used for primarily for dairies, and that's a high-value commodity, and it's, and it's it's an important one. Rice, um, you know, without getting into uh, too far down into the weeds on that, uh, no pun intended. Um, much has been done with laser leveling fields. Um, I mean, I've le- laser leveled fields so that you're putting on much less water, very, very small little amounts over the top to to keep that rice growing and alive. Um, and then when you look at at what rice does beyond just the commodity, by the way, the the varieties we grow in the Sacramento Valley, you can't grow but a couple other little places in the world, and they can't meet the market uh, for those varieties. But what it does for the ecosystem, what it does for the Pacific Flyway, for endangered species, the endangered garter snake, um, and and other things like that are uh, are real big assets. Um, it's real important if you want to understand ag. Don't go into your garden because that's not a good comparison. Don't drive up and down Highway 99 or I-5 and look through your windshield. My dad used to tell me when I was a kid, you can't farm from the windshield. Get out of the pickup, get your boots on the ground, and figure out what's going on. And that's one of the challenges because agriculture is unique. We've got uh, about uh, the, the vast majority of people in the United States are 
three generations removed from having a family member directly involved in production agriculture. And we haven't done a very good job of being able to explain what we do and how we do it. Uh, it's fun when I get the chance to, uh, especially with, with teachers and, and young kids in school, getting them to, to get their hands in the, in the soil. By the way, it's soil out in the field when you're growing and when there's water there. When it's on my boots and I track it in my wife's kitchen, it's dirt. <laughs> We're talking about water at Climate One. Danny Merkley is Director of Water Resources at the California Farm Bureau Federation. Uh, Lauren Summer, uh, I've moved my family diet away from animal protein to kind of more plant protein for climate and health reasons. Almonds are a superfood. You go to Whole Foods and they say well, this, how great almonds are, and yet almonds are a water hog. Have I done a bad thing? Uh, it's I, I love almonds too. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> but um, a big deal California, water. Yeah. yeah, and California grows a huge. It's like almost a hundred percent or something of of, of the of country's almond supply comes from California. I mean, what we've seen is a lot of acres go from crops like row crops into almonds. I mean, if, if anybody's driven kind of down five, if you kind of get off five into some of those areas, you really see a lot of almond trees. And when I've been out there talking to folks this year to do stories, I mean, one of the things people are really struggling with is in a really dry year like this one, if you had row crops that you plant every single year, you would fallow land. Well, trees, you can't do that. You have to give them water every year or you've lost an investment that's a decades-long investment. And so certainly the price have been very good for almonds. The export market has been very strong, particularly because of support from Asia. And so there's been a real incentive to plant orchards. But I think that's put a lot of people in a really tough spot this year in the sense that they have to have water and they're paying these really high prices to kind of keep these almond trees alive. And the larger question is whether that gives California's ag industry the flexibility it needs for droughts because we're going to have more droughts. Danny Merkley, quickly, and then we're going to get to the audience questions. And, and that's there. just touching the the head of the of the issue. Where I live in Yolo County, and and you look in other parts of the state, previously unirrigated land, land that that couldn't be irrigated. It's not level, not prime land. Because of our more efficient irrigation systems now, drip and micro sprinklers, we're seeing irrigate irrigated crops like almonds go into those areas. I don't have an answer for that. I don't know what to tell you. Um, I don't think we need to dictate what people should grow. I think the market will do that, and so will the availability of water. Lauren Summer, one big thing in the energy markets is fracking. A lot of people are concerned about uh, water impacts, water quality, water supply. The industry's moving toward recycled water. They say they don't really need a lot of fresh water. Uh, what's the impact on fracking in California in terms of water? Yeah, this is an issue that really has been in the news a lot, and there's a lot of confusion about it. So most of the fracking that's happened in California has been in the oil fields that have been producing for a really long time. And those wells, the reason they need water is that's what they're kind of mixing the sand and the chemicals into. It goes down into an oil well, and that's what's making these little cracks in the rock, the fracturing the rock, so the oil can flow more freely. And so in these older oil fields, they actually don't use quite as much as you might hear about in the news. Um, I think in other states, it's like a million gallons per well easy. In these older oil fields in California, it's not anywhere close to that. Now, the question is whether we're going to see an expansion of drilling because of fracking, that the technology is going to kind of incentivize oil companies to start drilling in new places and start using some of the techniques that we've seen in North Dakota and other places. And those types of wells do use more water, a lot more water. And so no, 
it's certainly when you look at the, the kind of total use of water in fracking in California today, it really is not that much at all. But the question is, are we going to see more drilling and more fracking? And then what will the pressure be on the water supply? Because it does happen in some areas where the water supply is already really stressed. In fact, there's uh, ballot measures this fall in San Benito and Santa Barbara counties to ban fracking, but all fracking is not is not created equal. Uh, we're talking about water at Climate One today. Our guests are John Coleman, president of the Association of California Water Agencies, California Assemblyman Anthony Rendon, chair of the State Water Committee, Danny Merkley from the California Farm Bureau Federation, and Lauren Summer from KQED. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Do you agree that water is over-allocated? And if you agree that water is over-allocated, does this bond do anything to move us toward the problem of over-allocation? Technically, um, over-allocated we, there's more we, water on paper than in reality. Well, and, and we don't have the time to get into how the water rights system works to that degree to answer that question satisfactorily. But if you understood how water rights works at the state water board, um, the, the myth that water is over-allocated by five or eight times, I've heard different figures, um, is at best a very poor understanding of how the system works. Anthony Rendon? Uh, I've heard uh, competing arguments about that as well. I mean, in, in, in general, what we're battling with is a water infrastructural system that's built for 11 million people in a state that currently has 38 million people and is on its well on its way to 50 million people. Um, we don't have enough water. Whether or not and there are arguments, varying arguments, arguments of varying degrees about the extent to which uh, water is or isn't al- uh, over-allocated, um, the bottom line is we have uh, not enough infrastructure for the number of people we have. And is the climate is changing. The whole system is built on this slow, steady melt from the Sierras, and more of that's coming as water, less as, as snow, and that's kind of rocking the system too. Fair enough, that, John? That's why it's so important to, when I talked about the four bay concept of picking it up when the high flows, and it's not a reservoir, it's used for boating and the typical view of a reservoir, and then it's released quickly back into the system, into the rivers for the fish, and picked back up to put in the ground. We have 10 million acre feet of groundwater storage available beneath the ground. That's more than what we have above the ground in the state today that we could be storing water in. Let's have our next question. Welcome. I understand the groundwater issue is very complex viewed statewide. I was just wondering... Uh, what's the groundwater situation around where we live here in Lafayette? We're fortunate that two of our panelists actually grew up in Lafayette. John Coleman, what's... We don't have... Uh, the groundwater basins beneath where we're standing are basically... They're minimal. Uh, there's not enough, really, to go... to put new water into, and they're not being overdrafted. They're not utilized, and most of it's just the runoffs coming off the hills, feeding the creeks, going eventually to the bay. But it is something that we don't really think about here in the Bay Area, and this is true all over the state. Our water travels hundreds of miles, hundreds and hundreds of miles in some cases. I mean, East Bay Mud's water travels a very long way to get here, and not in rivers, actually, in pipes a lot of the time or in canals and stuff like that. So I think it's something that we don't think about. We think of water as a local issue. In California, there's an incredible system that your water came from a very far away place. And the San Francisco Public Utility Commission has been handing out rain barrels, perhaps others, the idea that people try to capture their water where it is and and uh, and water their garden from water from their roof rather than hundreds of hundreds of miles away. Anthony Rendon. And, and to that, uh, to Lauren makes 
a good point, but I think it's important to remember that a lot of our water infrastructural system that brings water hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, through, or delivers it throughout the state was built 50 to 100 years ago by an incredibly engaged federal government or helped by a federal government that was engaged and believed that there was a certain amount of value to those types of projects. Regardless of what your politics are, whether you're on the left or the right, I think it's fairly safe to say that we have a federal government today that isn't that, isn't that engaged in terms of these large infrastructural projects or any sort of uh, public works projects. So to a large extent, we are sort of at this on our own, and those sorts of local solutions like water recycling, like groundwater uh, remediation, like stormwater capture, those types of local solutions are the things that we have to invest in because a, they're cheaper, and B, they're, they're local. Lauren Summer? I was going to add, you know, people here in the news a lot about the wildlife, right, about fish, about whether the water is going to the ecosystem, whether it's going to people. I mean, this is kind of the fundamental basis, right, to kind of this whole problem, right? The system was built a long time ago. It was built before the Endangered Species Act, before there was a lot of awareness about what ecosystems and endangered species needed. And so when we hear about these issues in the news a lot, it kind of is that fundamental disconnect, is that our water system was built before that time, and now we have a lot more awareness or concern Concerns, and that's where we really kind of see this conflict. Danny Merkley, should the Endangered Species Act be relaxed because of the water stress in California? I think the uh, Endangered Species Act was, was a very important piece of legislation um, in its time. It uh, is very inflexible, and for that reason, we're not able to adapt when things change. We shouldn't throw it out. I, I wouldn't for one second suggest that. But it certainly needs to have some more flexibility, just like our aging infrastructure that's over 50 years old needs the flexibility. And that flexibility is the changes that we've seen. And it's three real main changes. It's the change in, in our weather patterns from, from that Sierra snowpack to more volatile rainstorms to population increase and to uh, environmental policy. We kill more delta smelt with fish agencies doing research um, hundreds fold from what we're allowed to, to take uh, and having trained in the pumps. Anthony Rendell, let's get you quickly on that. Should environmental laws be relaxed because of the, of the drought? No, I don't believe so. And again, going back to, to what I've been saying throughout, I think the more we rely on local solutions, the, the better off we are and the less we have to look at uh, suspending environmental But they have been. In Lauren dry Summer? years, mm -hmm. the environmental rules are much less stringent, so they automatically get relaxed during a drought. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. As much as we need to rely on local solutions, I also think that we should remember that water actually doesn't travel hundreds of miles in this country. It travels thousands of miles. And in this country, we have developed an interstate highway system, an interstate national gas system. Why aren't we developing for the long-term solution an interstate water system? John Coleman, let's tap the Great Lakes. Well, I've, I've asked, people said, why didn't you ta take the water from the Columbia River? And I can assure you the people in Oregon would be adamantly opposed to it. It's not going to happen. Um, there are water markets that are available, which are coming, uh, being developed. Up in Humboldt County, There, they used to do a lot of milling for trees. Well, that used 60, 70 percent of their water. Those mills are now gone. They'd like to sell the water. It's a question, how do they get it here? Um, it's, and you can't, people talk about floating an iceberg. That's not going to happen. Uh, we need to, as uh, Mr. Rendon talked about, we need to locally look at what we can do. 
We need to make the investments working with um, other agencies. No agency can work in its own silo anymore. They have to work together. We need to work together with partners with the state and business, industry, labor. We are all in this together or we're going to fail. What happens in 2015 if this is not a wet winter? John Coleman? Well, it depends on the agency you're in. Um, It's going to be dire in many parts of the state. Some parts of the state now you're only allocated 50 gallons per water per house per day, regardless of the number of people living in them, living in your house. Uh, We don't want to get back to that, but if it's a dire year again, you're going to see agencies that are going to, in most cases, ban outdoor water use entirely because that's, in summertime, upwards of 70% of your water usage. Uh, you're going to see, hopefully, at the State Water Board uh, moving quickly with regulatory reform to deal with uh, recycled water. You're going to see more desal plants. There's 10 on the drawing board now in the state that will be sped up. Uh, things that people may have opposed in the past are going to fall to the side to some degree, and uh, it's just it will kill our economy. Uh, we need to remember that Water is the lifeblood of this state, and if we don't have the water resources available, we're not going to produce the widget, we're not going to grow whatever, and those are jobs. Even if you don't see it here, it's your job. You're going to pay for it one way or the other, and it's going to have an impact. Anthony Rendon? All of that and more. Um, All of that would happen, and it would all be played out in Sacramento in this already incredibly politically contentious environment. Um, it, it, uh, it would have dire consequences. And there's this uh, possibility out there that we may be, this may not be just another cyclical drought. This could be a, you know, a mega drought or a new normal where we're ending a really dry period for, where this isn't like, well, the 70s, we got through it, it was tough, but you know, eventually the rains came back. Is that awareness, that possibility resonating in Sacramento yet? No one knows yet, Anthony Rendon, but... I think it is. I mean, obviously, we deal with dozens and dozens of different public policy areas. I, I think folks in my committee, we had, because of the 18 hearings that we had, we heard from climatologists and scientists and and folks who 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 warned us that, that this might be the case. So, I mean, I think that led to our tremendous sense of urgency to actually do something. But that being said, I mean, keep in mind, I've said this so many times before, we have... The U.S. EPA has estimated that if you take one category of the the water bond, that water bonds divided into about 11 or 12 different categories, groundwater, water recycling, et cetera, one single category is safe drinking water. We have, according to U.S. EPA, we have $20 billion in safe drinking water infrastructural needs in the state, $20 billion. This bond allocates uh, less than 5% of that. Um, so the need for investment is is urgent. Uh, need for investment is timely, regardless of what happens with our weather cycles in the future. Uh, but I want to thank our panelists. First, I want to thank our crew here at the at Climate One. I want to give them a round for uh, helping put this together. And also... Um, our thanks to our, our conversation today here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club meeting in Lafayette with Lauren Summer, reporter with KQED Science. Danny Merkley is with the California Farm Bureau Federation. California Assemblyman Anthony Rendon, chair of the State Water Committee. And John Coleman with East Bay Mud. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for listening to this Climate One program, and thanks for coming out today in Lafayette. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. 
Our producer is Jane Ann Chan. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.